Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you are joining us, glad that our technology is holding strong and we're able to stream out to you guys again. Praise the Lord. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast. That's right, we're live with you and it's guided by your questions on the Bible. You can send in your questions on the Bible through various uh, online platforms that we're streaming to, which I'll go over in just a moment. And we will spend this next hour uh, answering your questions with the use of God's Word, the Bible. We have some wonderful guests here who love the Lord and love the Word and love to answer your questions, and that's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. So you may have a question on a specific verse or passage of Scripture that kind of is confusing to you. You'd like that expounded upon more, or maybe um, Christian living. You know, you'd like to honor the Lord with your life, and there's a situation, you're not sure what the Lord would think about it, what the Bible says. We're happy to uh, help you discover that, or maybe Christianity as a whole, maybe even other beliefs and how they um, line up with Christianity, anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest question, and as long as you know we're going to use the Bible to find the answers to those questions, where else would we go for those answers? So that's what we're all about. So we're very, very grateful for you, uh, the viewer, um, for those questions, because we, we never know where the show's going to go. It's all based upon that. So um, welcome, welcome once again. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host today, as I mentioned. I'll be on all those platforms, keeping an eye out for your questions coming on in with us today. We have Pastor Scott. He's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Where Guilty as charged. From. Yeah. That's you. Yeah. 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 How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's uh, good. I, I always, just, always wonderful to hang out and uh, spend time talking about the Word. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, thank you for your, your faithfulness and to be here. I've just noticed we look a bit like an Oreo cookie. We've got like two, two black shirts and a white one in the middle didn't get the black shirt memo over here but that's okay one day we're gonna well, people like the squishy white middle best so. <laughs> well that's debatable i hope i'm not squishy <laughs> you can let us know yeah. if you prefer the cookie yeah. or the squishy yeah. middle part um also with us pastor sean richards how you doing today i've been putting off that response for several days now but now i think it's due for an answer i'm okay <laughs> well, that was well we worth the wait yeah. yes thank you for joining me in the black shirt uh, region over here. One day we're going to have the same color shirt on. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. It will. I'm sure it will. Uh, well, as I mentioned, uh, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, um, 5 to 6 p.m. here, Mountain Standard Time in Tucson, Arizona. And of course, you can join us all around the world. It's an outreach and ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. Um, so you can find us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you're in the Tucson area, you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you're more than welcome to come and check us out. We're right by Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway right there. Um, so you're welcome to come to our services. Of course, we have Sunday services and a Wednesday evening service as well tonight. We'll be uh, going live and live in person and live online. So uh, come, you come, like I say, check us out if you're in the area. But uh, for the purposes of this evening, if you go to that watch live tab there at calvarychristianfellowship.com, that will take you to one of our live pages there. When we're offline, you'll see a schedule of upcoming events, so you won't have to miss a thing, and uh, you'll see a countdown as well. But when we're live like we are now, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with a username, and then there's a chat function where you can send me your questions directly, and I will be receiving those loud and clear, Lord willing. Um, or the direct link uh, to get to that page, ccftucson.online.church. If you type that right into your address bar, ccftucson.online. Dot church that would take you to the same place or follow a link from calvarychristianfellowship.com that's one of the ways that you can join us another way is facebook we're on facebook look for calvary christian fellowship of tucson and uh, while you're there don't forget to to like and to share we'd appreciate that and then send your questions in through the chat function which is attached to the live video facebook.com ccf tucson you'll find us 
right there. We have an app as well. If you go to your app store, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. That's our app. You can download that and watch us on your mobile device. You can also watch us on Roku if you have a, a Roku-enabled uh, TV or a Roku stick or something like that. Um, go to your channel store. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can add us as a channel. And also on Apple TV, same kind of deal. If you have an Apple TV or Apple TV device, you can watch us there as well. We're on YouTube. We're live again as we speak. Look for A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel there on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. That's a good place for archives as well. Whenever we've been live, it archives automatically there. Um, if you go to that live tab, so if you missed a show or you want to recap one of the questions, sometimes there's a lot of, you know, a lot of information, a lot of scriptures and things. You might want to go back and study that again. So that live tab is going to be your friend. For that and again don't forget to like and subscribe and click on that notification bell and then you'll get notified when we are live you won't have to miss a show uh, pastor scott here is on twitter or x or however they're branding themselves <laughs> these days um <laughs> it's very interesting the the platform formerly known as twitter <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think exactly yeah. whatever that's called now yeah. he's uh, on there scott alpha h is there's my angle. smiling face there it is they haven't xed that out yet so no not yet <laughs> not, not that there haven't been suggestions you haven't broke the internet with yeah. that yeah. yeah yes lovely picture that is look at that um, so anyway, Scott Arthur H. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody <laughs> stare at him. <laughs> yeah, look, look yeah. into those eyes, yeah. those blue German eyes. Yeah. Um, Scott Arthur H. Yeah, it's uh, Scott Letter R number four, letter H on Twitter, uh, where he posts highlights from the show and all kinds of things, uh, especially uh, things going on in the world, news events and things in the Middle East, things pertaining to end times and prophecy and those kind of things. I know for me, I get a lot of my news updates from Scott because I trust him. Uh, so if you're interested in all those things, follow along with him. And there's some funny things as well, shenanigans and tomfoolery, as we say. So there on Twitter, uh, Scott Richards, you can follow along. We're on Rumble as well. We uh, post uh, videos there, some archives and other stuff. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A if you're on the Rumble platform. And then we have an email address, questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com you can email us your question there we get to those as well uh, welcome if you're listening to us on the radio reach radio or one of the radio affiliates we're glad you're listening in uh, you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you per se but uh, if you keep in mind that email address questions for hope at gmail.com we'll try and get to that question on our next show which will be the following day for you it gets very confusing but anyway we're glad you're there we're glad you're listening so whatever platform you found us on we're glad you're there send your questions in early we do often run out of time so get your questions in and i will be uh, looking for those and throw them out here to our guests well with all that being said pastor scott i've heard that you like talking to god i do would you like to do that right now? I would love to talk to God right now. <laughs> Let's do that. that Father, good. I thank you so much uh, that even that phrase, talking to God, it sounds so outrageous to some, but I thank you, Lord, that uh, you tell us that not only do you hear us when we call upon you, uh, but uh, Lord, uh, the, the wonderful thing is as we pray, uh, our prayers are like incense rising before you, like the evening sacrifice. And uh, Lord, uh, what a beautiful thing that just like a, a loving parent loves to hear uh, their children come to them and make requests and ask them questions about life. That's the same kind of attitude we want to have in this broadcast today. Uh, Lord, we don't want to come uh, pretending that we've got our act together or that uh, we deign to share uh, our wisdom with uh, the less uh, fortunate or the less uh, wise. 
Uh, Lord, the only wisdom that we have to share is the wisdom we find in your word that's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy. And uh, Lord, what a beautiful thing that is. Uh, thank you, God, that you will give us that wisdom uh, abundantly and overflowingly. We just ask. So we ask right now that your spirit would guide us into truth. Guide this conversation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah, it's really important to know and state that we're not wanting to share our opinions on this show. We really want to, as accurately as we can, share what the, the Word says, what God would say about all these issues. Yeah, as, as much as we can. As much as we can, to yeah. our understanding. And, but that's certainly our intent. So certainly a prayer is a good thing to, to do as we enter into this. But um, Well, diving right into questions. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah? yeah, all right, great. Well, we have a question from Greg. <clears throat> Greg says, I've always uh, been taught to understand 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 as a rapture, which is Christians removed from the world to not experience the time of tribulation. Um, but with further current study of the passage, it seems to be pointing out that this is the second coming of Jesus. Could you give your evaluation of the scripture and what you believe it means? Sincerely, Greg. Thank you, Greg, for your question. Yeah, when it comes to concerns about the end times obviously last days issues are a last topic matter and it assumes that you've read a lot of the stuff that's come before it before you figure out what's going on uh, as far as the reason why many including those who would disagree with it entirely would justify first Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 as a rapture passage is because that's the passage where the rapture word comes from. Uh, obviously, if you're reading in English, it's not going to appear, but haparzo in Greek is translated as caught up. In the Latin Vulgate, it's rapturos, so that's where we get the word from. Uh, as far as it being a reference to the second coming of Christ, the two big obstacles for that are largely going to involve, first of all, the necessity of there being a rapture and the timing of there being in a rapture. The reason why we would argue the timing of the rapture as fitting into this section is what's called the doctrine of imminency, which we'll get into in a moment. And the necessity of there being a rapture is the pattern that God's followed from the beginning whenever he judges, always providing a means of escape. Now, we can get into post or mid in a moment, but when it comes to this passage, let me just read it. It's noting in its immediate context, comfort for those who had physically died and wouldn't, of course, get to experience the return of Jesus. Paul clarifies that doctrine by stating, when we're with Jesus, they're already there. So it's not like there's a loss of order here. Verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for physical death. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, past tense, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So, those who are physically dead are with Jesus. That even though Jesus died and rose from the dead in the past, those who have right. physically died have presently risen from the dead and are with Jesus. And when he returns for us, this is where the dual direction comes from, either that's going to be at the second coming, a la Revelation 19, which is true, the saints will follow him on white horses, we're told that, or it's the fact that when we're caught up to be with Jesus, they're already there because they're ongoing definition with Jesus. Neither of these interpretations exclude each other. Now it says in verse 15, 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So notice chronology. Those who are with Jesus are with Jesus before we're with Jesus, if that makes sense. Right. <laughs> if you have physically died, you're with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. On and on it goes. But if you're with the Lord, we're either brought to him or he returns to us. They're his posse to use the modern term. For the Lord, verse 16, himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, that's where the word rapture comes from, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, once again, the pieces of the puzzle that we have access to, the information that we're told about the Lord's coming, isn't just going to include him appearing in the heavens, but literally footfalling on the Mount of Olives, causing it to split, creating a new valley through what's known today as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's in Southern Galilee. But this new valley springing up, going as far as En Gedi, and rewriting the cartography of Israel as we know it today. Right. Now, what's going to be interesting about this is not only the impact geologically this will have on the Dead Sea, but also politically, in that Jesus will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's the second coming, and noting that his footfall, his dissension, from the heavens to the earth is a completed action, not a total action. Those who would argue a post-tribulation rapture view or a non-tribulation rapture view that we're just all kind of just taken out of the way before Jesus nukes the planet, that's the idea, is that when the Lord comes, while he's still in the air, we're caught up to be together with him. Those who argue that position or the mid-tribulation rapture position emphasize at the last trumpet, noting the chronology of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 11. Those who would argue a pre-tribulation rapture view then are noting, okay, is it the second coming? Well, that would emphasize what? In the air, which any other position could justify. He's not necessarily in this section coming down to the earth. He's calling us together to be up with him. It doesn't exclusively mean the second coming. Second, could it be a mid-tribulation rapture view? Well, those who would argue it have to emphasize the last trumpet is in reference to the seven trumpet judgments, which again is an inference, not necessarily a conclusion, because Paul's audience was aware of what he was talking about. Revelation wouldn't be put into writing for another 40 years, going off the, I guess, 30-something years at the time that 1 Thessalonians was written. But his audience, for some reason, knew about these things. So note that is an issue. The first view, that this is before the tribulation, seven years before the time of the second coming of Christ takes place, a hidden coming, as it's referred to by critics of the rapture, are pointing an emphasis to the doctrine of imminency, the necessity of there being an unanticipatable nature of the Lord's return. And that's why we would fit this into a rapture view. Now, for the sake of those in the audience, and then we'll put the pieces again together for them so that they would understand this does, in fact, fit into the more imminency view rather than the 
expected view. What is the doctrine of imminency and why is it important for our understanding of the end times? Well, uh, it uh, really goes down, comes down to one of the most important things Jesus said about his return, that no man knows the day or the hour, that he is going to come as a thief in the night. There are going to be people that are going to expect and anticipate that. They're going to be blessed. There's going to be people that are going to be caught completely unaware. We are also told in uh, passages like Matthew chapter 24 that uh, of that day and hour, no one knows. We're at verse 36, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, Jesus' message here is saying that his return is going to be like the days of Noah. What happened during the days of Noah? Well, first of all, there was a prophetic warning that took place. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. Uh, while the ark was being built, it was a testimony to the people of that time who had, by and large, rejected uh, God, that uh, judgment was coming. Then, once a provision was made for the people of God, Noah and his family in the ark, God closes the door, and then and only then does worldwide judgment fall. So when Jesus says this is going to happen, uh, it's not that there isn't going to be a heavenly heads up, uh, but when it happens, it's going to catch the vast majority of people in this world as off guard as what happened during the days of Noah. Uh, it ties into that idea of him coming like a thief in the night. Uh, also, the doctrine of imminency ties into Titus chapter 2, and, uh, or Titus verse 2, or chapter 2, I should say, and verse 9, where we are told, but the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches that denying us ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless work, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This looking in the original language uh, carries the idea of an ongoing action. In other words, uh, if uh, we are talking about a non-pre-tribulation rapture, uh, well, you know, we should be looking for the Antichrist to come. We should be looking for uh, the uh, plagues and judgments of the book of Revelation to be taking place. But that's not what the uh, believer's anticipation is. We are always to be looking for the Lord's return. Uh, why? Because God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says that. That's why uh, the message that Jesus could come at any moment uh, is something that Paul says should be something we should comfort one another with. Uh, yeah, uh, before Jesus returns, things are going to get a lot darker in this world than any of us can even imagine. Mm. But God always has a provision for his people because Jesus fully paid the price for uh, our sins, bore the wrath of God for us. We won't have to go through that time of God's wrath poured out upon this world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians won't suffer in this world. Jesus clearly said, in this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. 
Christians can experience persecution. Christians can experience uh, having their goods taken away from them. Christians can't even experience people persecuting them to death. Happens every day in this fallen world. But what we're talking about is the wrath of God, not the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of man. And so that's, uh, in essence, uh, why we uh, look at the rapture from a point of view of imminency and why we take a pre-tribulation view. So noting that, and just to clarify again the term, no man knows the day or the hour. So past, present, or future, no one can know when the rapture takes place. Well, obviously people who missed it will know when it took place. People with the benefit of hindsight will know when it had taken place. But Jesus, speaking to the audience in anticipation of it, said there is nothing, no thing, that would clue you in as to say, this is when it's going to happen. Right, and it creates a tremendous problem for people who say, uh, well, it could happen in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation because this no man knows the day or hour factor. Well, if, for instance, according to Daniel chapter 9, the tribulation begins when the Antichrist makes a strong covenant with many for seven years, since the ink's dry on that peace treaty, you can know when the Lord's going to return. We see at the end of the book of Daniel even more specific data that uh, from the time that the abomination that causes desolation, that is the Antichrist setting up his uh, image in the temple to be worshipped until the Lord comes back is 1,290 days. So if you are in that period of time and you see the Antichrist doing that, you can know the day. In fact, uh, I think God's math is so precise, uh, the minute that that uh, image is fully set up, that's when the countdown clock mm. begins to tick. So you know, the reason we take a pre-tribulation rapture point of view is not because we come out of Calvary Chapel or because Chuck Smith said so. It's because it's the only point of view that we believe takes all of the pieces of the puzzle prophetically into account without creating some insurmountable problems uh, as far as some of the other points of view are concerned. So then back to your question, when we're talking about this passage being a reference to the second coming of Christ or a provision, a insight into how God's going to keep up his standard for how he deals with situations and cases of judgment throughout history, including the future, we need to first of all ask ourselves the question, what fits the puzzle piece? Okay, could it, like we talked about before, reference the second coming? Well, it could reference a section of it. Some people would read this in Revelation chapter 20 after the battle of Armageddon, but the problem is Jesus will be ruling and reigning at this point. You have to read a lot more into the text than you could naturally glean out of. So we'll say it's on a you know, green, red, yellow. We can say it's in the yellowish red category because there's so much that you have to assume, not enough that you can establish from the text itself. Okay, could it happen during the Battle of Armageddon? That's going into red territory because when the Lord comes, we note the doctrine of imminency does not allow that. You would be able to know the day and the hour of the Lord's return. And noting that point with our rapture-like state, that's when and what he was describing when he said at the time of his return no one knows no one can know in the context of anticipation it's in direct contradiction to matthew 24 and uh luke is it 26 pray always that you may escape all these things luke uh, 21 21 thank you now the third option is is this an anticipation of something other than the second coming of christ well christ will come to this world and impact it through his conscious will, but not do so in a way where he fulfills that Zechariah passage setting foot on the Mount of Olives. 
That's where the rapture doctrine fits into this, a time where we will be caught up to be together with the Lord, where what was demonstrated by John in Revelation 4.1, him being told, come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this, and immediately he was in the Spirit and in the throne room of God, basically, not just shown what Ezekiel was shown, but literally face-to-face, closer than even Moses and the 70 elders got to experience. What fits the data. Well, we would conclude that the rapture would fit this, a pre-tribulation rapture definitely, mid-tribulation rapture perhaps, but then imminency conflicts with that. The problem is this issue. So if we can explain the most possible data, like a scientific hypothesis, we work with what information we have. Do we know how long the tribulation will be? Do we know when the halfway point of the tribulation will be? Do we know when the tribulation ends? Where does Jesus' second coming fit into this? Does this conflict with other plain statements Jesus made? Working with all the information we have, we have room for, and this has been shared with many, by many Christians throughout history, the idea that Jesus will intervene before the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, any of them are poured out because all are classified as the wrath of God in Revelation 6, Revelation 15, and onward, and only as the wrath of God, not the wrath of man, not the wrath of the Antichrist, the wrath of God. What then would be the exemption? Whereas we're told here, where we get the word rapture from, a moment in history where the Lord will physically transition us to heaven without physical death, noting will be brought with the Lord but we won't physically die like those who are already with the Lord who are in that state because of physical death. That's the point of the passage, and if we need further examination, note it's just through a process of elimination. What fits the most data? I know there's a lot of assumptions, a lot of theological commitments that are made online. We'll be happy to entertain them, but you don't want to disqualify conclusions because of assumptions. We only want to work with the data. And the only thing that we have to quote-unquote read into this passage is a term, not a concept. And a term is just a title. It's like saying the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity because the word isn't in there. No, the concept's taught. We just came up with a word for it. Well, is the rapture taught? Has it been taught? Well, whether it has or not is our ignorance, not the Bible's clarity. But if, on the other hand, we're to look at this passage and say, this is applying to the second coming, the second coming is a footfall. It includes that. Jesus never footfalls in this passage. That's why we would note it as distinctive along with other things. Very good. Yep. Greg, thank you for that question. I hope that helps you out. Appreciate uh, you being part of the show today. Uh, question from L. Rocks. Uh, how do we respond to people who say that Christians are just homophobic um, or even that we must be closet homosexuals to be so passionate about opposing it? Wow. Well, I would say the same form of logic could be turned around. Um, would uh, it make sense to say that an atheist, because they're so passionate about their point of view, must be a closet, closet Christian? Christian yeah. <laughs> uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be so passionate about their position. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to extend the benefit of the doubt uh, to someone who claims to be an atheist uh, and assume that they're a person of goodwill who believes that their atheism is going to bring about a better world while they sing John Lennon's Imagine as their national anthem and so on. Uh, you know, I, I could understand that. I could understand being passionate about that. Mm -hmm. If you feel like religion is the cause of all the problems in the world, well, then you're going to be passionate about trying to provide a solution to that problem. On the same uh, token, we as believers in Christ uh, aren't uh, homophobic in the sense of fearing homosexuality. 
But we do believe that God has communicated to us certain things about our sexuality that we believe to be true. Uh, for instance, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 said that uh, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He said, have you not read, he who in the beginning, uh, he made, he in the beginning made them male and female, uh, and this was God's pattern for the practice of our sexuality. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that uh, if we go outside God's given standard for the practice of, of our sexuality, one man, one woman committed together for life, uh, and I say, for instance, uh, with my heterosexual lust, decide to be involved in sexual relations before I make that one man, one woman committed together for life uh, commitment that we call marriage, I've committed a sin called fornication. If after I get married, I decide I'm going to go outside the bounds of God's guidelines for marriage and decide to be sexually intimate with someone who is not my wife, I have committed what the Bible calls adultery. Mm -hmm. I have taken my desires, my uh, quest for pleasure, and have said that is more important to me than following through on God's guidelines. In the same way, if I uh, say through homosexual lust, decide, well, uh, I'm going to violate God's standards by having sexual relations with someone of the same sex. Uh, I've done the same thing that the heterosexual has done. I've just done it in a different way. Uh, the, the issue isn't being afraid of people. Uh, the issue isn't wishing people ill. Mm. Uh, the bottom line is we believe that God has given us commands for a reason. He says he knows he, the plans he has for us, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give us a future and a hope. We believe that God's commands are good and they lead us into paths of righteousness. They lead us to a place of fulfillment within our lives. If we are in fact created by God and we want to uh, experience the best blessings of his creation, well, we should read the owner's manual, if you will, and conduct ourselves accordingly. If I say, well, I know better than God, and I'm going to do things my own way, certainly as a human being, God gave you free will and free choice. You can misuse that free will and free choice to pursue pleasure as uh, your ultimate uh, GPS heading in life and decide that you are going to act upon those things apart from the will of God. Uh, but I don't see any phobia involved with any of this. Yeah. It really kind of comes down to, has God spoken? Right. If he has in fact spoken, if he has given us incontrovertible evidence of the fact that he is true by walking among us in the person of Jesus Christ, if Jesus backed up his teaching on issues, including the definition of marriage and the practice of our sexuality with a sinless life, dying on a cruel Roman cross and rising from the dead three days later, to show that his claims to be God in human flesh. He who has seen me has seen the Father are true. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life, he said. Mm. Uh, so if we believe these things, uh, the most loving thing that I can do to say uh, my uh, LGBTQ plus friends is to say, yeah, I realize that you identify with this group. I realize that you have these strong desires. I understand that there's a struggle here, but this is what God says. There's a better way to live your life. Uh, I'm not asking anything of someone in these groups um, to do anything or to be anything any different than what God asks of me. Uh, because, you know, again, 
I could say to myself, well, if uh, God really wanted me to be monogamous and to be committed to my wife the rest of my life, why does he give me these desires to look at other women from time to time? He wouldn't give me this desire Mm. if he didn't want me to act on it, so therefore I must act on it. Well, I could follow that line of thinking, but uh, it wouldn't uh, exactly please my wife as I tried to explain the rationale for carrying on with another woman. So, you know, here's the bottom line. It comes down to this. Do you believe what Jesus said about marriage? It doesn't have anything to do with phobia. And when people start throwing around, uh, you must be phobic, uh, usually it tells me that their argument is not based on thinking through these issues. It's not really even based upon caring about the people involved with these issues. It's a very defensive sort of a thing. Uh, It's a very aggressive sort of a thing. It's Mm -hmm. not the pursuit of wisdom at that point. It's the idea of shutting down someone who might hold a different point of view than you do. So when we explain to you what our point of view is and why we hold it, Jesus said that this is how God has created us to relate to one another as a man and a woman. I'm under the same strictures and guidelines as someone uh, with, uh, who would uh, want to deviate on the other side. And uh, my heterosexual lust is no better or worse than homosexual lust. It still is uh, me saying to God, God, I know better than you, and I'm going to practice my sexuality outside those guidelines. Just a question of which direction you want to go. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah. Anything to add there, Sean? Name calling isn't an argument. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Very true. So, you know, and, you know, I would just say, you know, especially to our atheist friend out there, um, you know, you're going to probably gather more uh, flies with honey than you are with vinegar. Uh, you know, the minute you start dropping these kind of pejorative terms on people, ad hominem arguments or F-bombs or things along this line, might make you feel good, but do you really think that you're building any kind of bridges with that other person? And if you're not interested in building bridges with that other person, you're just interested in putting them down or mocking them, well, what does that say about your character? And, and how would, would you enjoy it then if I say, well, you're just Christophobic. You know, and uh, a person like you is just terrible. Yeah. Uh, well, no, that's not going to build any bridges. So mm-hmm. just a pro tip for you, um, think through your arguments. Mm-hmm. Think through why you believe what you believe. Uh, ask yourself this question, okay, uh, is Jesus a valid source of truth? Yeah. What do you think about the rest of his teaching? What do you think about his life? What do you think about uh, the evidence that he rose from the dead? Yeah. Because if he did rise from the dead, I'll tell you what, we should run, not walk to our nearest Bible, not just on that issue, but all of the issues of life. That's right. Yeah. So that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And if he didn't, if there isn't a God, then I can understand the atheist point of view that, you know, man, man, woman, woman, whatever floats your boat. You know, I understand that point of view. If there isn't a God, if he hasn't spoken. So that's really the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Has, has God spoken? Well, Did actually, Jesus come? According to an atheist worldview, the propagation of the species is the highest good. And since a homosexual hedonistic relationship doesn't produce offspring, they should be against it too. It's not a matter of logic at all. Mm, yeah. That's true. Yeah. It is a bit contradictory in that, in that sense. Yeah. Well, but that's Elrock, for consistent people. <coughs> that's right. Elrox, thank you for your question. I hope that helps you out. Sounds like you're having a conversation with somebody about these things so hopefully that gives you some things to a conversation involves two people this is just a sloganeering exchange at this point yeah uh question from lowell who's uh being uh very open and honest with us uh tonight with his question he says i struggle uh with lust and self-gratification please help he says every single night before i sleep and every single morning 
Yeah, um, I, I understand, man. When it comes to any form of dependency, or I even hesitate to say addiction, but if we're going to call it a drug, it's really terrible when it's attached to your body, not to be crass. But the I think that went out the window uh, two sentences ago. Uh, for those of you who are listening who don't understand self-gratification is a term that we would use as an alternative to masturbation. masturbation. If you have a kids in the room, I guess we're going to be honest here today. But when it comes to any use of our sexuality or abuse, understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. The truth is not in us. But the next verse of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, verse 9 reads, if we confess our sins and note this, what does he do? He is faithful and just to cleanse us. Forgive us sin. and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. yeah. So, and then if we he goes on to repeat the point. The second chapter, immediately following verse 10, says, I write this to you that none of you may sin, but if anyone sins, let's just be real, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who cleanses us from all sin. So when it comes to how we express or struggle with sin, specifically in the area of self-gratification, once again, it's a number of factors that we can I guess, trap ourselves into. The first can just be a habit formed as far as coping with stress. And it's a natural way that that happens. Not only do our bodies uh, release a lot of adrenaline and dopamine in that process, but it is something that people use more and more in this day and age in alternative to some very dangerous substances. So they can justify it from a multiple different angles. The second way that people obviously struggle with this is in association with other sins. You mentioned lust. We can maybe associate of the eyes in this because upon arousal, this is usually what's associated with pornography and that kind of struggle. Uh, both are, of course, intertwined with something less than what we were just talking about, God's ideal purpose for our sexuality. But when we're talking about the fact that this is an ideal and I'm not doing it, that's true for all of us, what's the solution? And the answer isn't to go on seminars that basically build up your ego to the point where you see yourself as above those lowly plebeians that would defile themselves in such a pedestrian way. Nor is it helpful to just, you know, give up the struggle, say, well, I've dug my hole this deep, there's no hope for me. Uh, you know, I, I listened to a Sean McDowell lecture and I've rewrapped the cartography of my mind, so now I'm permanently trapped in this sort of thing. I'll never have a meaningful relationship again, I may as well just succumb and surrender to this. Neither are helpful. So what is the answer? Well, the first and most important thing I can share from personal experience is that when it comes to any struggle, when it comes to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, it's not a change that happens overnight. When you give your life to Jesus, there are some things that he'll deal with right away. There are other things where you have to depend on him day by day through the power of the Holy Spirit, not just for freedom, but also for restoration. And these sort of things are helpful in the long term because they remind you that it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit that anything in the Christian life is made possible. Sometimes the permitting of certain sins to not flourish, certainly, but exist within your psyche, give you the chance on a daily basis, in your case every night and every morning, to say, okay, am I going to default to my way? 
of dealing with these things, of answering these desires? Or am I going to fall back on God's way? Am I going to see him as a better pleasure, to use Bo's term, although David thought of it first, than what I'm naturally defaulting to? And this will be something that you either have the opportunity in one moment, to the next moment, to the next moment, say thank you for, or say I'm sorry for. But either way, who are you in communication with? Who are you seeking fellowship with? Who are you finding restoration with? It's all bringing you closer to Jesus. And again, people would cringe if uh, they, in their legalistic system, heard someone other than their preordained ministers to say this, but I'll say it anyway because I can do so. It's this, the person who struggles with self-gratification multiple times a day but ultimately finds himself honestly at the feet of the cross is better off in his relationship with God than the man who hasn't even dared to indulge in those sins before and is completely unaware of their need for a savior. I'd rather be Philadelphia or uh, I'm uh, confusing the names of the churches there, the one that had Jezebel as a part of it. Um, Thyatira. Thyatira, thank you. I'd rather Thyatira than Laodicea. But the point being made is this. If I'm put in a situation where I have to ask myself the question, is God at work in my heart and life today? The best thing that people obviously ought to do is look for growth in their life. And growth as a uh, botanist term is not something that happens immediately. It's not even something that happens visibly. You just wake up some days and find that a deeper issue that you weren't even aware of suddenly isn't there anymore. Man, I, I normally blew up in anger at these sort of things. I see that kind of image and I just can't help but rush to the bathroom. Again, sorry for being crass, but the point still stands. God can do a work in your life, but you need to A, give him time, B, need to give him the opportunity to do so, and C, know where and how he does it. When you have a daily basis to either say, God, make your power known in my life, whether it's through victory or mercy known in my life, in my restoration. Either way, let me bring it before you. My sin, my wickedness, my brokenness, I'm looking to you for restoration. That person has an abiding relationship with Jesus. Obviously, it's a difficult struggle, because like I said, a drug that's attached to your body is difficult to amputate. I don't recommend the pursuit of becoming a eunuch for the kingdom of Christ in this way, because you still got your brain. The point of emphasis is this. If you need to take practical steps, if there's patterns of life that you can do adjustments to, um, my mentor, Peter Martin, uh, when he would struggle in this area in his own way, he found one of the best things that he could do, he wouldn't have a problem with me sharing this, by the way, uh, to deal with the habits that he would form that would put him in that lust mode, so to speak, was literally to move his alarm clock to the other end of his bed so that when he had to wake up in the morning, it wasn't just to lie there, he had to make another conscious effort and it broke the pattern, the cycle, Mm -hmm. the mindset that led to those sort of things. If you, when you wake up in the morning, have those things, when you're going to bed at night and you have those sort of deals, maybe move your bed around so that you're just in that different position in your room and you don't automatically lock into those mindsets. Those things help. But if you want to seek freedom from sin, understand that that's secondary to the better treasure, and that is a deeper relationship with Jesus. One will produce the other, but if you get one without the other, you've just replaced one bad habit with another. This is the point. If you have the opportunity to pursue Jesus, 
for restoration or an opportunity to thank Jesus for victories that you know from experience would not have been possible apart from his work in your heart and life, both are positives. So again, just to recap, don't think that because you struggle with this sin that God's forsaken you. If anything else, it shows his continued involvement in your life and an opportunity very directly and very readily to do so. Second, don't think that, oh, if I fall into this again and again and again and again, the frequency of this sin shows that I'm in bondage to it, that I don't belong to Christ. No, it means that you're still in a fallen sinful flesh. And if you read Romans chapter 7, he describes it as a body of death, literally chained mm. to a corpse right. that's going to continue to get stinkier and stinkier the more time that goes on as a torture method for prisoners. That is how he compared his body uh, and his nature in this life to what he would ultimately be expecting to be released from when he's with Jesus. This appears in many different ways, but for guys and girls, especially in this generation, this issue comes up. So note that point. The third thing, seek accountability. Find the opportunity and motivation, not just to, you know, vent to us on a radio program that aren't necessarily looking you in the eye, that don't necessarily have an influence over your life or a place of respect in your walk with God. Find people that not only their walks with God you'd want to emulate, but have shown victory in this area specifically. Because again, you go to just anybody and they'll probably <laughs> give you the legalistic rant. Well, I have victory in this. What's wrong with you? Not helpful. Find someone that you can be accountable to, that you can meet with on a regular basis, that you can even reach out and call to and saying, hey, I'm struggling right now. Can you pray for me? Or even better, hey, I fell. Can you pray for me? And have someone help you work out of your training wheels, so to speak, in getting back up again in your walk with God, because that's what it's all about. It's not saying I have no sin. It's having the opportunity to say more and more, I value Jesus more than my sin. And you're not going to know what that is until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So understand this isn't an immediate process. Understand that this isn't the sin leading unto death, as it's oftentimes made out to be. And understand as well that it's more of an opportunity to deepen your fellowship with God than a lot of people give you credit for. What matters is the attitude. And is it getting your nose in your Bible? Are you responding to these struggles with an opportunity to say, you know what? Yes, I'm defaulting to this. Yes, I'm a fallen sinful being, and this is how it manifests, whether it's in anger, whether it's in greed, whether it's in pride, whether it's in anything. I have the opportunity today to say yes or no to fellowship with Jesus. And again, not to be crass, but just full confessions, there was a time in my walk with God, notice, in my walk with God, where I would consider it a victory if just once a day participating in these kind of activities was a victory for me. Now it's a matter, as a result of a miracle in my life, where, what, four, maybe five times a year I have to even seek public accountability with these sort of things. And again, you guys can uh, back me up on my uh, travel records here. I'm weekly attending purity groups. I'm weekly pursuing that sort of accountability with our assistant pastor, Bo Olet, and others. And it's not as a result of anything that I've done. It's a result of the work that God's done in me. And my efforts are putting myself in a position where I'm not sabotaging myself. I'm not making more provisions. The struggle's still there. But I can see victory, I have seen victory, and I'm continuing to see victory. Does it mean I never know defeat? No. But does it mean that I'm closer to Jesus today than I was yesterday, regardless of where I find myself now? I hope so. 
and that's your opportunity. Again, the name uh, is more anonymous than it will make a note, but you know who you are. And anyone else here who's struggling with those things, let us know if we can pray for you. Let us know if we can maybe provide you with materials that you can uh, go through your Bibles in that directly pertain to this topic. Boalette specializes in these sort of things. But find people in your life that you can be accountable to and that you can seek the opportunity to confess to, because James 5 couldn't have been more explicit, not just in confessing to Jesus in 1 John chapter 1, but James 5 notes, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and then goes on to note how it even affected the weather system yeah. <laughs> in history. Yeah. So yeah. let us know if that helps. And again, thank you for your honesty, but note this isn't... Uh, as dark and bleak as uh, guys like Sean McDowell and others make it out to be. It's an opportunity like any other time in history for us to depend on Jesus and, well, all the more for it if that's where it leads you. Yeah, and like you said, it's, I mean, this is a strange encouragement, but it's good that you're struggling with it because surrendering to it. millions of people that don't struggle with it, they just do it, you know, but the struggle is that indication that God is putting his you know finger on that and saying this is you know i have better for you and that's a good sign that's an encouragement to know that god is working through that so yeah the struggle absolutely. is good you know but we all sin we need to struggle with sin with the lord and not just allow it to but it won't go anywhere until you see a better option make right. sure jesus is that better option because again freedom from sin in one area will be replaced by another yeah if you follow Jesus, then this one area of sin will be a very easy either or that you can choose on a daily basis and see rewards for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything yeah. to throw into that, Scott? Um, no, I think that, yeah. that uh, covered it really well. I just think the only other aspect of it is um, just think of it in terms of uh, the perspective of love as well. Uh, when uh, we get involved in a pattern of self-gratification, is that teaching us to use our most intimate ways of expressing love uh, as uh, something that uh, we're using to reach out to others, or are we just becoming more and more ingrown and yeah, isolated? Just selfish. Yeah. yeah. So we've um, yeah, got, got to be very careful with that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, Lowell, thank you. Thank you. Um, praying for you, and thank you for your, your confession, and hope that helps you out. Question from Alon: uh, Jesus' first miracle, uh, turning water into wine seems to be the miracle he was hesitant to perform. Does this speak to his uh, humanity and that he may have felt fear to begin his ministry or was it something else? I think it was something, something else. I think it was something else. Um, <laughs> you know, when we take a look at the, uh, the, the miracle of the changing water to wine in Cana, Jesus makes a, an interesting statement. Uh, you know, again, uh, they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said, and they have no wine. Uh, at a wedding of that kind, that would have been an incredibly uh, shameful event. The family would probably never get over uh, the idea that they ran out of resources for this week-long blowout they used to call the wedding feast. Yeah. Uh, Jesus said, woman, why does your, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A couple things about this. Some people say, you know, Jesus said, woman, uh, you know, he was being disrespectful. Well, uh, he used the very same word when he said to Mary while he was hanging on the cross, woman, Behold your son, and to John, uh, John, uh, you know, behold your mother. Uh, you know, th this was not a uh, put down or a pejorative. This was mm. a, a term of respect. Uh, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And the mother said, 
uh, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, as we know, Jesus acquiesces and does this miracle. Now, what is this deal about uh, my hour has not yet come? Well, we see all the way through Jesus' ministry that he did miracles to verify the fact that he was God, that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. But the problem with the miracles was they were pretty readily misunderstood uh, by a lot of the people that were around them. So you had to be very careful about these sort of things. In John chapter 6, for instance, we see that after Jesus had fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, they were ready to take him and make him king by force. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, the, there was going to be a, a riot that was going to break out as yep. a result of all of this. Jesus understood that God had a very precise plan as far as his ministry was concerned. And people wanting to push him in a particular direction wasn't going to get him off of God's timetable. Uh, We see, for instance, in uh, John chapter 7, that his brothers said, oh, you know, why are you hanging out here? You should go up to the feast and do your miracles publicly so that everybody will see how wonderful you are. You know, in other words, they're trying to push him to do something that uh, he wasn't going to do. Well, he does go up to the feast, and he does do miracles there, but all on God's timing, not because people were pushing him in that particular direction. That's one thing we have to understand in all of this. The other thing that's really interesting is that he does turn water into wine. This is the first miracle. You know, the Gospel of John's been called uh, the, uh, the eyewitness account of Jesus of the seven signs, because there's seven major miracles that accompany the, uh, the telling of the life of Jesus here. This is one of them. But it's, there's an interesting thing about this miracle that takes place. It says uh, in verse 6, now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now notice the, this, these water pots were for Jewish hand-washing rituals that would take place. Mm. And, uh, you know, they weren't to be used really even for drinking or anything along that line. It was just they didn't have running water like we do. Mm. Uh, They would go through a very elaborate ceremony where they put a little water in one hand and then they would put it over on the other. And then, you know, and it was uh, a uh, a sign of piety. Uh, One of the things that Jesus' disciples was called out on uh, was that they were eating food with unwashed hands Mm. because they were going through a field and uh, eating uh, stalks of grain during the Sabbath. You're eating with unwashed hands. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it wasn't that they were being slobs or being unhygienic. They weren't observing this very well-worked ritual, which we never see commanded or instructed in the Old Testament. It was an example mm. of people out Bibling the Bible. So mm. that's what these water pots were all about. It was a tradition. It was something that they did uh, to show that they were godly and righteous and so on. But uh, interestingly, Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, that was a huge act of faith on these individuals that were doing this. Why would you take water from water pots used for hand washing and give it to the head of the feast? Mm. It would be almost an insult if that was happening. (laughs) Yeah. It says, uh, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew, drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests are well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, notice, this is a very private miracle. 
you know, you get the impression that when Mary was saying, uh, go get, uh, you know, they have no wine, he, she wanted Jesus to do something spectacular. Yeah. You know, and maybe it was, oh boy, wouldn't this really be something to show, you know, that he could, you know do something along these lines. Mm-hmm. How in the world is he going to do this? Uh, Jesus kept it as private as possible mm-hmm. because he said, my time has not yet come. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus... Uh, earthly ministry hadn't started. He'd already been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit had already come upon him. But he was on God's timetable, not on man's timetable. Mm. And at this point, doing major miracles like this and doing things uh, of a spectacular nature. Really interesting that in the temptation of Jesus, one of the temptations that Satan lodged at him was taking him to the pinnacle of the temple. In fact, if you go with us on our trip to Israel in 2025, we can show you uh, the place they believe was the pinnacle of the temple, mm. the area around the Temple Mount that was highest above the rest of the, the terrain there. Yep. You know, it was like a 90-foot drop down to the bottom. Wow. And Satan said, throw yourself out. I'll show you the Son of God. Mm. Well, you know, why does Jesus then say, it is also written, you shall not uh, put the Lord your God to a foolish test? Well, the, the reason he said that was he never did miracles for the sake of self-aggrandizement. He never did miracles to hype up a crowd. Mm. Uh, he never did miracles to increase his popularity numbers. Yeah. He always did miracles in terms of meeting decided, definite human needs mm. and demonstrating his divinity on his own timetable, mm. not anybody else's. Yeah. So, you know, when we see that, it's very interesting how limited uh, the people who knew about this, really the, the uh, wine steward, yeah. uh, the bridegroom and the bride, and his disciples and his mom knew about it, but really not too many other people. Right. Why? Because it wasn't time for other major miracles, like feeding the 5,000. Right. That would be a major miracle, yeah. which would be appropriate in its time. But even then, they sort of missed the point. Read yeah. John chapter six if you want to see how far afield they got. Yeah, so. yeah. great, great stuff. Um, Alon, thank you for that question. We're out of time for today. We're gonna to be going live again in just half an hour for our um, Wednesday evening service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Heavy duty study, man. We're gonna talk about the devil uh, tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> in Ezekiel, right? Yeah, the power Ezekiel. behind the throne. You wanna figure out why this world's so messed up? Come on out. Wow. <laughs> wow. There you go. That's, that's quite an invitation. So stick around in 30 minutes, or we'll be back again tomorrow for Reason for Hope. Thank you for your questions. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.